All right, Apostles' Creed. Last week, uh, Aaron preached part of the Apostles' Creed for us uh, about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Today, we're looking at the statement, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now, right off the bat, I know you're thinking, we're not Catholic, right? I mean, maybe you didn't know that, but we're not. We're not Catholic. Um, So why do we say we we affirm or we believe in the Holy Catholic Church? Well, when when you look at the word Catholic in its its generic term as as a common noun, not as a proper noun, but as a common noun, it just means universal. It just means universal. It actually comes from a Greek word that means throughout the whole. So the Catholic Church, lowercase c, not Catholic like Roman Catholic Church, but lowercase c Catholic Church, is, the, is all of God's people through all of time and space. Regardless of denomination, regardless of nation or affiliation or whatever, it is all of God's people. And you and I are part of that universal church. That's why we can say we believe in the holy Catholic Church, the universal church of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the universal church, though, I'm going to get to the local church here in a minute, which is one way when you use the word church, you either mean universal church or local church. And sometimes in Scripture, there's a term when the church is used, it's universal. In other places, when it's talking about like the Corinthian church, it's using a local church, for example. Um, but when we're, we're, we're talking about church, one of the things that has to happen is some changing of our understanding. We in the West have adopted some understandings of the church that are not based on scripture, but are based on word usage that were brought, was brought into the English language. The original word in the Greek, in the New Testament for church is ekklesia, and it means an assembly or a gathering of people around an idea. Um, in fact, if you break out the word ekklesia, it means uh, out of and called out. So it's a called out people called out of something else. But the problem is that our English word church doesn't come from that word. Our English word church comes from a German word, which means a sacred place where you gather for religious purposes. So in the, in the dark ages, that term began to be used by, as church. So this is why when you, drove, when you drive by on, on Center Street out here, you look up and you say, there's the church we meet in. Right? But we also use the term city on a hill, church. You do realize there's a difference, right? There's a difference between the physical building and, and the people of God. The physical building, and, and you wonder why, why so much money was spent and time spent on beautiful stained glass like this building. This was all done because the church was a place of worship. It was the place where, where people met God and encountered God. And the problem with that is that what happened with that understanding of defining a building as a church, became that became the definition of church, period. So then people no longer saw church as the people of God, but as a place that you go to. And that has carried over into our culture. What is the local church then? Uh, the local church, defining it Scripturally and looking at the whole New Testament imagery here in the picture, the local church is the countercultural community of Jesus meant to declare and display him in our world. It's the countercultural community of Jesus. So it's a community, it's a group of people meant to declare, tell others about him, and display who he is to the world around us. People are supposed to be able to look at the church, not the building, but the church, the people of God, and see. That's what Jesus is like. 
We're going to be in Romans 12 today, so I encourage you to open your Bible. And what we're going to do is just walk through what I think is the most compelling picture of what, uh, and practical picture of what it looks like, what life in a church looks like, the church in this countercultural community. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul begins with saying, I, after, after building out his entire theology, okay, Romans 1 through 11, greatest theological explanation in the Bible. 1 through 11, the gospel on display, and, and, and so clear and so deep. And then he shifts gears at the beginning of verse 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So because of everything I just said, go read that, 1 through 11, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he says, now, because of the mercies of God, your life is a life of sacrifice. Your life is a life of worship to God. This is not individually. This is in the plural. The language is not you and you and you and you. It is you. So I grew up in Virginia, so I can say this. Y'all, right? Y'all present your lives as living sacrifices. Then he says, verse two, this is where we get this idea of a, of a countercultural community. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the culture of this world, the framework of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. So the church is the community of Jesus having been redeemed by him under his mercies who is now living as living sacrifices not conformed to the world, countercultural to our world, but instead being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And as we go from here, you're going to hear Paul just dig into all of this language and imagery about what it means to be this countercultural community. And I want to challenge you to do two things. One is observe how bizarre how absolutely fundamentally bizarre the language is compared to the way our culture operates. And number two, reflect on how much every person in this city actually wants to be a part of this kind of community. Let's look. Three markers here of the countercultural community of Jesus. One, it functions as a body. Functions as a body. Verses three through eight. Listen to Paul's language. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sober judgment means clear-headed, right? So you have an accurate assessment of yourself, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many are one in body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to them. Let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, act, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, this is getting at how Christians uh, function, right? Together, we function as a body, and a body has, has unity. You don't look up here at my body right now, and you think, his body looks really disunified, right? There's, there's an underlying assumption that my entire body is in unity at this moment, that, that my lungs are doing what they're supposed to do, my heart's doing what it's supposed to do, my hands are moving around like a crazy person, 
uh, like they're supposed to. Um, and whatever else, you're, you have this assumption, I'm a body. That's what Jesus's church is to be like, that every person is part of the body. We are individually, in the languages, members of one, one of another. So look around the room. You are unified in the body of Christ by the fact that Jesus has redeemed you. You are brought in. You are brought in. This why a community is our second core value because it's not a community we just try real hard to create. It's a community that Christ has purchased with his blood. And he has then made you a member of his body. Yes, there's tons of work to work out practically because of that. Why? Because we're, we, we all come with background. We all come with experiences. We all come with our framework and our emotional baggage and everything else. So we got to work out of that. But we don't work for unity in the church. We work from unity. And until that becomes a practical reality that works out. Every Christian belongs to each other because they belong to Jesus. And and Paul then unpacks in verses 6 through 8 the spiritual gifts then. That every Christian has a spiritual gift. And I want to define that very quickly so you have that. One theologian describes it this way. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. He then qualifies this a little bit by saying this is a broad definition and would include both gifts that are related to natural abilities, such as teaching, showing mercy, or administration, and gifts that seem to be more miraculous and less related to natural abilities, such as prophecy, healing, or distinguishing between spirits. So every Christian who is part of the body has been given a gift, and that gift is to be used. And it's not to be used for you. You were given a gift not for your own edification, your own building up, for the, but for the building up of the body. Listen, what, there, there's no part of your body right now that can get by without the rest of your body, right? If the hand says, I've got my own deal, I'm going to go my own way, the heart doesn't have to pump blood to it, right? No, the hand functions as part of, it's integrated into the rest of the body. And I love this language because individually then, verse 1 said that we were all supposed to present our bodies as living sacrifices, but now we are part of a body, a new body. So our, our individual bodies are meant to be given as living sacrifices to God. And how does that show up? It shows up in the body of Jesus, the church. And how much have we lost this? How many of us think if we don't serve, then it's really just kind of robbing us? Seriously. If I don't volunteer for a ministry or I don't help in that area, really, it's just kind of me. I'm just kind of, I'm going to miss out. Yeah, I can do that. Or how many of us think that if we don't uh, show up for community group or we don't show up for worship to sing or to serve, that, that somehow it's just us that's going to you know, feel the weight of that? How many of us stop and think about the fact that when we don't serve, we're robbing the body of Christ? And you know what it is, what what the enemy underlying this is? And this, this is the West, consumerism. We have turned church from, from a place meant to be a living sacrifice, serving for the good of the body, to a place where I get my needs met. 
Is that going to meet my needs? Is that serving me? Am I, do I like the preaching? Is the song, were the songs good? Could I tap my, my, my foot to them? Did I like the singing, the, the, how the, 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 the vocalist sang? Or did I like this or that about the church? Do you see that language betrays a consumerism where we see the church not as a place to serve, but as a place to serve us? We see the church not as a place for us to go use our gifts, but a place that, that, that is the local dispenser of religious goods and services for us to consume. I'm telling you, the church, if we got this, would be a countercultural community in the world because everybody else operates in a consumer mindset. But what if we came together as a body and we said, I'm here to serve. How can I serve? How can I serve you? How can I serve you? And maybe, just like in a marriage, when a husband looks at his wife and says, how can I serve you? And she looks at him and says, how can I serve you? That lo and behold, in some weird, glorious way, we all get our needs met. Not because we went in, oh, I need my needs met. People aren't meeting my needs. Why aren't people meeting my needs? But instead going, I want to be a part of creating a culture where I serve others. And even in that, I find joy. No wonder people get frustrated with church. We take the countercultural community of Jesus and turn it into a place where we're supposed to get our needs met. So do you look at church this way? You measure church by how well it serves you or how well you can serve. The church is a countercultural community of Jesus meant to declare and display him in our world. And we do it, number one, by functioning as a body. Number two, we do it by relating as a family. The church relates as a family. Verses 9 through 16. Listen to the language here. This is, this is just crazy language Paul uses. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. He's saying, don't, don't settle for complacency. Don't settle for becoming complacent in your church, in your love for others. Serve the Lord with zeal, with fervency. Contribute. He says, uh, look at verse 12. Rejoice in, in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Bless those who who persecute you. Not prosecute you, though they might prosecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Listen to the language here. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection or sisterly affection. Not like when, you're, when you were little, you've got siblings, and you're, you and your siblings, you know, brother and sister did this. But adult, grown-up love, right? And, and actually, the NIV translates this here, be devoted to one another. Because the idea here, I think we throw out love so much. But, but be devoted has some clear indications to it, doesn't it? We, implications for us. We, we think about it. If I said be devoted to each other. You couldn't help but think about, well, what does that mean? That means I'm really committed. I'm really, I'm loyal. I'm going I'm to think about that other person first. I'm going to serve them first. And that's what a healthy family looks like. Now, I realize 
in, in a group this size, some of you come from some really dysfunctional, unhealthy families, right? That's, that just happens. But I've never met someone from a dysfunctional family that didn't know their family was dysfunctional. Because there's something in us that says, no, a family's supposed to be loving. There's something in us that says, no, a family's supposed to be committed to each other. They're supposed to be devoted to each other. They're supposed to serve each other and, and, and make sure everyone's needs are met. Right? There's something in us that screams that. This is, that's what's supposed to be. And that's what I was pointing to in earlier when I was saying everyone in the city wants to be a part of that. What if the church stopped simply talking about it and actually practiced this? And I've seen, I've seen indications of it. Listen, it, this is never, this is, we all want things we can achieve, right? So many of you have achieved academically or professionally, and you just like being able to check that off, you know? And, and you're thinking, brotherly devotion, be devoted to one another. Check. No. <laughs> You'll never be able to check it off. I'm sorry, right? This is, a, this is an ideal, that, that when we give ourselves over to it, it begins to shape us and it shapes our relationship with each other. How crazy is it on like wedding days when, the, when, when, when couples make vows to each other? Right? For, for sickness, for health, for richer, for poorer. They're basically saying, however this thing goes, I'm all in. I told Teresa... I would love her like Christ loves the church. And you know what? We've been married for 27 years, and I can still not check that one off the list. But as I give myself to that, then I begin to be shaped by it, right? And and there's glimpses of it, right, sweetheart? There's glimpses of it, (laughs) And when we devote ourselves to each other in this way, yeah, we're not going to get it perfect. We'll talk about what we do when we fail each other in just a moment. But if we give ourselves to being devoted and loving each other in this way, then what does that do? It shapes us. It begins to shape the community. And this is where Christ is exalted. Verse 11 and 12 is just this quick succession of demands, all in the plural, saying you must do these things together. And he's saying, be zealous, fervent in your service to Jesus. Why is that? And let me just say this. Because not only are we a countercultural community, but the culture pulls on us, right? Every one of us feels the weight of a world sucking us towards our, our, our comfort, towards caring about ourselves more than others, towards, towards valuing things the way the world does instead of valuing things the way Jesus does. We feel this weight, which is, by the way, why we have to do it together. Verse 12 tells us how. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. You know what my, and I said this earlier, but, but you know what's shaping me right now, even though I don't have a lot of indicators that, that this is happening? I have a hope that Jesus Christ could blow this city up for his name. I believe he can. He's done it. He's done it all over the world. If if the church can explode in a place like Iran and Afghanistan and in places where there's persecution and like Nigeria and like, what are, why couldn't he do it here? Well, there's a lot of smart people here, Blaine. 
Do you think that impresses God? He made the human mind. There's no one that impresses God. It's like, you know what? She's pretty smart. I don't know if I can overcome that. No, there's none of that. God does not look at this city and wonder what he could do. I don't know. He's waiting for his people to seek his face and plead with him to bring revival, to bring renewal. And listen, I know there are people praying. There's some of you who have been praying for this for years. There were people before I planted City on a Hill Church that told me that for 20 years they had been praying for a church to be planted in Brookline. It took 20 years for that prayer to be answered. But I have hope that God can do it and I want to be a part of it. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Tribulation's hard, right? That's why they call it tribulation. (laughs) Be patient. You know what the Greek word patient means? Long-suffering. That's what the compound word in the Greek means. Long-suffering. Just like our Savior is long-suffering with us. And then be constant in prayer, which is why we're doing the month of prayer. So here's a a direct application for that text for all of you. This month, be constant in prayer by joining in this month of prayer. I remember back in the early days of City on a Hill, in our core building days, we met in a Jewish synagogue in Coolidge Corner. And and if you've been around, you know my story. I had a cardiac arrest um, not long after we started and I remember uh, one of my, my the, the thing that came out of that more clear than anything else was how people prayed. Like the community groups that night, the night I had my cardiac arrest, I was in a medical coma when they met. They didn't know my life was hanging in the balance. And those groups prayed. Like they didn't go, let's just take a moment and pray for Bland. They prayed the whole time. And when they had stopped praying, they went back and prayed some more. They prayed that whole time. And you know what? Here's the thing. God did through that, coming out of that, we continued to pray. There was a spirit of desperation in our church that, that God needed to not only save me, but, but he needed to move. We needed his help. We were, we were two dozen, three dozen people meeting in a basement and of a Jewish synagogue in Coolidge Corner. There was no church yet. And if there was going to be a church that was going to plant a flag for Christ in Brookline and say, we're here to display and declare the goodness of Jesus, then he needed Jesus' help. And for years, prayer shaped our church. I want that to come back. But I don't want to have another cardiac arrest. Amen? (laughs) My wife and kids, yes. (laughs) But what if we actually just sought God? We asked God, give me that sense of desperation. Give me a longing to pray for you, to you then maybe we could be a countercultural community that declares and displays Jesus as a family. And the final idea, and I'm going to land here, is in verse 14 and then 17 through 21, is the church operates in this thing called grace. And this may be the craziest part of the whole passage right here because the language here could not be more antithetical to the way we function in our culture right now. Listen to this. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, if possible, live, uh, live peaceably with all as, so far as it depends on you. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Listen, to the contrary. That sure sounds like a countercultural community. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen, our culture screams right now, if you've been hurt, cancel that person. If, you've been, if you have experienced suffering at the hand of someone else, then you should retaliate. Don't let them get away with that. Make them pay. At least, at the very least, have nothing to do with them, right? But that's not what Jesus tells us here. Listen, I'm not saying it's not easy. Has anybody read that? I just read that. Did anybody in here go, whoo, so glad I got that one down? Anyone? Why? Because there is a pull on us and there's a natural inclination to retaliate with evil when evil comes at us. There's a natural inclination to curse those who curse us and bless those who bless us, right? It's natural. And you will never do this text on your own, which is why we have to do it as a community. We have to do it together. It's easy to take revenge. It's easy to return evil for evil. But we are a countercultural community, not conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. There are two truths that Christians, all Christians and non-Christians deal with in community. This is just very simple, very simple human sociology. You will get hurt in community. If you're in any community for any period of time, you will get hurt and you will hurt someone else. It is universal realities, right? There's no community on earth that you can go to that you will not get hurt in. And the church is included because the church is not perfect people. And I think in some ways we think, we we look to Jesus and we go, well, if the church was just like that, I would never get hurt. Well, we don't often think about the fact that if I was like Jesus, I would never hurt anyone. Listen, the church, gets you're going to get hurt in church. Some of you have hurt each other. I have hurt some of you. You have hurt me. And we have to work through this together. Listen, we, we, we don't do this because we're, we're better. We don't do it because we're better than other people. We do it because we're following a savior who did these things for us. When we sinned against him, he died in our place to give us life. When we cursed his name, he blesses us with the gift of salvation. Jesus doesn't hold our sins against us, so we can't hold sins against each other. That's why Paul in Ephesians, I can't wait till we get to Ephesians. I've been reading through it multiple times already, and we're going to get into it in September. But one of my favorite passages is is Paul says, forgive one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Jesus has forgiven you. Do you know what kind of weird community that would be? Do you know how weird that would look to the world outside of it where we can say, you know what? We hurt each other, but we have grace. We're in community together now. We love each other. God helped us to overcome that. The gospel helped us to overcome that. 
We ask for forgiveness. We talk to each other when we hurt each other. Like, is anything more unnatural than that? Our culture is like, like, you hurt me. Okay, well, I'm never going to tell you. Or I'm going to tell you in a way that's going to blow you up, right? So those are the extremes. You either tell someone in a way that's unmistakable. They know they hurt you because you're trying to hurt them. You're weaponizing their hurt back at them. Or on the other extreme, you just, you're passive aggressive and you just never tell them and you act weird. Okay? I would rather you come yell at me. I'm just going to tell you that right off the bat. Don't be passive with me. You come to me. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I can take it. You just bring it, right? I have to work on being gentle. So. <laughs> but I would say that, what a beautiful community. And there's none of us in here that's like, no, I don't really want to be a type of a community where I'm forgiven by others when I wrong them. Or when people come to me in humility and they say, hey, you, you hurt me. No, I don't want to be a part of that. No, we all long to be a part of that. But do you know the work that it takes? It takes you going to people you've hurt. It takes you uh, receiving when someone comes to you. And the natural inclination for us is defense. And I'll say this. Dealing with wrong is the Achilles heel of community. It's the weakest spot for relationship dynamics and long-term health and growth of a church. Why? Because grace is the oil that runs the machine. <laughs> most, uh, most car enthusiasts believe Bugatti is the greatest sports car ever made. It's certainly the greatest in the world, or one of the very greatest in the world right now, right? Amazing. It's like $3 million car. 16-cylinder, 1,500 horsepower, amazing motor. Do you know how far it will go when you drain the oil out of the engine? It'll be glorious for a minute. <laughs> and then it's going to explode. And that's what happens when we take grace out of the church. When we stop looking at each other with grace, we've removed the oil, and now all there is is friction. But the good news is that Jesus lives in his people. You see, Jesus blessed those who persecuted him. He sought to live peaceably with all. He never avenged himself. He always trusted his father. He overcame evil, not with evil, but with good. That's who we're marked by. And that's what it means to be a church. It means to be a body. It means to be a family. It means to be marked by grace. And that community, that community, there is nothing in this city that could stop it. There's nothing in the world that can stop that community. That's what Jesus wants us to be. And I love as we move into our time of response, this countercultural community has a meal. We have a meal. It's called communion. And Jesus, um, uh, Paul records in, in um, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, what Jesus says. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's talking to the Corinthian church here. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you bring, drink, uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion 
is not just an individual act between you and God, your, your union with God. It is a vertical act, a declaration of oneness with his body. And yes, we have all failed. Every one of us have failed to live up to this vision of the church. So as, as we come before the Lord, I encourage you, if you're a Christian, we're going to take communion. Anytime over this next song, there'll be a stations here at the front, stations in the back of the aisle. But, but I want to encourage you to repent. Repent. If you've been living under your own strength and not dependent on prayer and God's power through prayer, repent if you have not been been fully devoted like what this passage talks about. Repent and ask God to move in our church, in our community, and then take communion with joy, knowing your sins forgiven once and for all. You're not a Christian. The invitation is to join this community become a part of the church, the universal church and a local church, to be invited into a community that that is pressing into this ideal, a place where you can experience grace and mercy. We all need that. I'll be in the back after the service and would love to talk with you about that and help you in that journey any way that we can. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. And we'll respond together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for creating this crazy countercultural community. Every one of us, with our, all of our baggage, all of our backgrounds, all of our experiences, and you bring us into a family together, into a, into a body. And you invite us to embrace grace and live in grace and extend grace to each other and have it extended to us. May this mark us. As we take the bread and the cup, we remember what you did to make this possible. We ask all this in your perfect name.